So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at ButcherBox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Do you want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on. Of course you do. The average podcast listener has six shows in rotation, so you're most likely not just listening to Conspirituality. And that's totally okay. I'd love to share a podcast to add to your list. The Jordan Harbinger Show is a top-shelf podcast named Best of Apple in 2018. So don't just ignore my suggestion to listen to this one like you probably do with your other friends who tell you to listen to podcasts. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes to scientists, political activists, mobsters, even hostage negotiators. And Harbinger has an undeniable talent for getting his guests to share never-before-heard stories and thought-provoking insights. Without fail, he pulls out tactical bits of wisdom in each episode, all with the noble cause to make you more informed, a critical thinker, and to better operate in today's world. I was on his show. In preparation, I listened to a bunch of episodes. He's just really good at what he does. Like episode 880 features Ian Bremmer, you know, the top-notch political scientist. And the topic is dealing with the world in disarray. But then you have episodes like his skeptical Sunday format. Episode 882 looked at homeopathy. But he has other episodes on Ayurveda and also the popular pseudoscience of analyzing body language. There isn't a better podcast to listen to casually or seriously to expand your worldview. He's also got a strangely relatable weekly segment called Feedback Friday, where Jordan covers advice on everything from escaping a cult or a psycho family situation to relationships and networking and even to asking for a raise. So point blank, Jordan Harbinger is smart, funny, he's easy to listen to. You'll be pressed to find an episode without excellent conversation, a few laughs, and even actionable advice that you can directly use to improve your life. You can't go wrong with adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a fan of workplace comedies like The Office or satire like The Onion, then I have a podcast that I know you'll love. It's called Mega. 
Mega is an improvised satire from the staff of a fictional mega church. That's the premise. Each week, the hosts, Holly Laurent and Greg Hess, are joined by guests, since people like Cecily Strong or Jen Hatmaker, to portray characters inside the colorful world of Twin Hills Community Church, which they describe as a mega church with a tiny family feel. The result is a sharp-witted and hilarious look into the world of commercialized religion using humor to cope with the frightening amount of power that church and religion have. So I very much recommend you checking out Mega's episodes, like the one with Saturday Night Live Cecily Strong, playing Cece String, a hilarious character who's fresh out of jail, uh, and also comedian Jason Mantzoukas, you may find yourself dying of laughter and perhaps inspired to take an improv class yourself. Mega is able to keep you laughing as you think and reflect about the world we live in. You can find Mega on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everyone. Matthew here, piloting this week. You can follow Derek, Julian, and I individually on Twitter, collectively on Facebook, and on Instagram. And you can become a supporter at Patreon backslash Conspirituality, where for $5 a month, you'll receive access to two years of bonus content and our regular weekly bonus episode, which drops on Mondays. Now, our last bonus featured Julian and I discussing his recent trip to a Catholic funeral to support a friend, but also to do some atheist anthropology and to see whether his curdled heart might open before the altar of God. Uh, it's a conversation on the edge of my own next immersive topic that I'll be working on over the coming months. I'll be diving headlong into the conspirituality elements of the trad Catholic movement, which is becoming increasingly radicalized, visible, and effective in the anti-abortion politics and culture war panics over trans existence. I'll be looking into the conspiracism, anti-Semitism, and anti-communism of these gothic nooks and crannies through the lens of my own Catholic childhood. But before that gets rolling, we have Derek dropping a bonus this coming Monday on how 16th century Japan, crawling with Christian missionaries, became a center of firearms manufacture and entered the Sengoku Jidai, the age of the country at war. But then the Japanese banned Christianity in 1616, and guns as well, with one shogun expropriating all iron in the region, including guns, to melt down and cast a giant icon of the Buddha. This bonus will precede a two-part main episode series on guns and spirituality in the U.S., now, at last count, there's over 2,100 of you supporting this work, and that helps keep us ad-free and editorially independent. And as we grow, we can do more, because we've got plans. Please also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on whatever service you use. Episode 108, Down East with Christian Northrup, with Mooncat, Andy O'Brien, and Alice Ornella. Half a million Facebook followers, 
hundreds of videos in a series called The Great Awakening. Christiane Northrup, the matriarch of New Age Women's Wellness, warns her followers about fake viruses and tells them to avoid sex with their vaccinated partners. She stumps alongside QAnon celebrities, shovels campaign contributions to Trump, and dotes over sovereign citizen sheriffs. To ease your symptoms of ascension, she offers bath recipes of alfalfa greens and Dr. Bronner's soap. You can have a good soak and listen to her golden harp. On January 6th, she wasn't in D.C., but she sent blessings to her fellow patriots rushing the Capitol from the quietude of her waterfast retreat, sort of like Luke Skywalker bilocating into battle through meditation. But in this nowhere world, where, oh where, is Christiane Northrup? Who is she? Is she flesh and blood? Or is she a social media hologram generated by a Louise Hay AI? Is that mansion she broadcasts from a soundstage? Or is there real soil and manure and flowers there? Our guests today know Northrop as super real because they live in her home state of Maine. Alice Ornella, Andy O'Brien, and Mooncat have known her as a doctor, an MLM diva, an anti-vax rabble-rouser, and a QAnon tour promoter. But now, they tell us, another Northrop may be crystallizing on Maine's rocky shore, floating past the lighthouses and over the cranberry bogs on a cloud of essential oils. She's been seen haunting the blueberry patches, wearing a chunky necklace of lobster claws, and as Northrop begins to hold revival meetings in down-east churches and openly fantasize about murdering political enemies, they wonder if she is assuming her ultimate form— as an in-real-life cult leader. Okay, so going on two years now, we've argued on this podcast that one can't really understand the contemporary conspirituality movement without understanding the ubiquity of cultic dynamics in New Age, wellness, and yoga spaces. Now, the intersection between conspirituality and cults is twofold. In terms of content, the two-faced offering of comfort and terror that conspirituality preaches slides seamlessly into the thematics of most cults, because in order to recruit, cults have to close their sails on two ideas, that the world consists of nothing but endless, confusing horror, but that the group, under the leadership of the fearless leader, offers a safe haven. And not only that the cult will actively exaggerate the depravity of the world to upsell its salvation plan. A lot of you will remember how this played out in the case of the late Katie Griggs, also known as Guru Jagat. Uh, we covered her in episodes 36, 37, and 64. Now, the ideology of Kundalini Yoga that she inherited or hijacked from Yogi Bhajan was already radiantly paranoid because Bhajan would always describe the outside world as debauched, irredeemable, and also that the FBI and CIA were out to assassinate him for speaking the truth. 
In the COVID era, with Bajan's legacy newly stained by revelations of abuse, it was entirely natural for Griggs to go full red pill and boost maniacs like David Icke, who basically describes the fallen world in the same way that Yogi Bajan did, uh, only using anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and a little bit less misogyny. The bottom line is, the content of cults has always been pure conspirituality because combining love and terror creates powerful bonds. So, conspirituality offers new content to cults, and cults offer conspirituality something in return. Infrastructure. It's no coincidence that some of the first support for QAnon that signified a crossover into the New Age wellness space came from Jay-Z Knight and the Ramtha School of Enlightenment, which has been a brick-and-mortar high-demand group since the early 1980s. You can hear more about them in episode 104. It's also not surprising that a portion of the New Age content that braided its way into QAnon beliefs came straight out of the California-based I Am movement, dating back to the 1930s, uh, which was then picked up and rejuvenated by Elizabeth Prophet in the 1980s for her church universal and triumphant. So when Mike Flynn gave that prayer about the Great Rays, he was, unconsciously or not, drawing on older resources that aren't just thematic. That prayer card he claimed someone handed to him was printed in some culty print shop. So there's more on that in episode 81 with Sean Prophet. When Tom Cowan came out at the very beginning of the pandemic and said that According to Rudolf Steiner, dead almost 100 years, there was no such thing as COVID. That message might have died on the vine if it hadn't been for a global network of fringy Waldorf schools that picked up and spread the link, making it more likely for Kelly Brogan to find it. Now, is the international Waldorf schooling system a cult? I, I wouldn't go that far, but we did learn in episode 59 with Jennifer Sapio that certain schools or zones within larger systems like Waldorf International can display classic cult dynamics. Likewise, when Katie Griggs took up the mantle of COVID is a conspiracy, so let's party like it's the apocalypse, she already had a bustling media network and a gaggle of low-wage devotees to push her unhinged messages. And there's just no way that the flood of COVID-era conspirituality would have spread as quickly as it did without finding these well-worn riverbanks. But aside from Griggs and Jay-Z Knight, most of the influencers we have covered over the past two years are completely drunk on the poison chalice of the internet. Some lead retreats or speak at conferences, some are media moguls, but no one so far has moved towards that very pre-digital commitment, the sweat equity of a brick-and-mortar cult. Until maybe, now, Christiane Northrup is extremely online, but she's also investing heavily in her ground game, and today we'll look at these developments more closely with some Mainers in the know. Now, I made some jokes off the top because with Northrop, how do you really avoid it? But she's actually up to some super sketchy shit and it's getting more dangerous. 
And as Julian pointed out in his open letter back in October of 2020, she was already sharing stages with people like Sasha Stone, who was braying about slaughtering his demonic political enemies. She was praising the constitutional sheriff's movement and dumping cash into various MAGA campaigns. And at the end of our panel discussion, which I'll roll next, we'll hear her fantasize about putting bullets into the heads of political enemies. Northrop's spiral into in-real-life political aggression is important because she can cloak the unapologetic openness of her violent reactionary fantasies in a scented cloud of bourgeois respectability. And perhaps for us on the pod, it also signals a new phase of the conspirituality phenomenon as we approach the midterms in the U.S., Her hundreds of thousands of loyal followers are being further red-pilled into linking sovereign resistance to vaccines and masks with actively supporting far-right, QAnon enthusiast, anti-abortion, anti-immigrant, anti-LGBTQ, and stop-the-steal candidates on the electoral stage. And things are only getting more violent. And on that note, just a last-minute addition before we kick off, while in production, our panel guest, Andy O'Brien, who reports on far-right politics in Maine, had to submit a police report after being threatened with violence via a phone message. Now, I heard the message, and I'm keeping the details out pending the investigation, but I can confirm it came from an operative in the far-right Maine Stands Up movement, which was co-founded by Christiane Northrup. Our guests today are Alice Ornella, who works in the field of disability services and was actively involved in the pro-vaccine legislation that passed in Maine in 2020. She has watched Northrop's upward failure as a community health influencer. Welcome to Conspirituality Podcast, Alice. Hi, thank you. Uh, We also have with us Andy O'Brien. He's a journalist and former Democrat state representative who co-authored one of the best investigative pieces on Northrop's Q adjacency back in 2021. Hello, Andy. Hi, thanks for having me. And we also have Mooncat, who's a citizen journalist who has been tracking Northrop events as well as events within her growing dodgy network. Mooncat is withholding their name because they're going to continue to do undercover work. But you can follow them on Twitter, where they have this great uh, tagline attached to their handle, scratching through Maine's OSINT litter box and scooping out the clumps. Welcome to the show, Mooncat. Hi, thanks for having me. So I wanted to start with some wisdom from the matriarch herself. Uh, This is from just over two years ago. And as she says, only 32 days into her great awakening. Here is Christiane Northrup. Hi, everybody. It's day 32 of the great awakening. And, you know, I've just talked with a friend, a doctor friend was just over bringing me some homemade sweet potato fries. And uh, I was asking her about the test for this virus. And she said, (laughs) they're just measuring either an RNA strand or DNA strand. Uh, An actual virus has never been completely discovered. So it's an exosome. And I'm still trying to figure out, I think, I think that's true from what I've read in other places. So isn't that interesting? 
uh, I got a um, request from that wonderful Marine with the bullhorn in Sacramento to contact him. I love the way this works. See, here's what's happening. We are, you don't wanna hear it? You heard it here, not first, but we are the virus. We are the virus. We are the radical light virus. We are the angel warrior virus. We are the freedom, peace, joy virus. That's who we are. It's what we are. And we are highly, highly, highly contagious. All right, there she is. Um, thoughts? Uh, anybody want to go first? What do you hear there? That began with reference to her friend bringing her some nice homemade food and then landed in a place that was somewhat unexpected, but similar to a Simpsons episode. It's very hard to reconcile a lot of her ideas, how she embeds everything in this sort of hominess particularly interesting. She has this idea that she is inverting this viral concept. I haven't heard that one yet. Uh, I'm still trying to process that. <laughs> right. To me, it sounds like, you know, the escalation of some of the rhetoric that was taking place in Maine um, in public conversations over the two years prior to the pandemic about freedom, which would continue to ratchet up to very high degrees throughout the course of the next two years following that. Andy, what about the the sweet potatoes? <laughs> well, it's really it's really interesting and disturbing how she uses these communiques that she comes out with every day to kind of establish a like a community. She she talks like she's talking to a close friend and she's inviting people into this community and they're sharing food and they're uh she plays her harp and she has this kind of soothing calming voice and she references all this stuff that if if you didn't follow her for a while you wouldn't know what the hell she's talking about you know goddesses and light workers and things like that but by the time you get to the end of it it's just fire and brimstone uh you know it's like reading a copy of the awake magazine you know where it starts to make sense you know and you start following it by the end you're like holy crap we're all gonna die so i i, I think that's kind of like a cult-like behavior where she kind of leads people in and makes them think that she's you know, she's, she's they're part of the family, kind of. Um, and, and I think that's sort of her her strategy or her unique way to, to bring people into this movement. There's a, a way in which it's always buffered, too. Uh, right up to the end, I mean, she is talking about we are the virus and we're highly contagious. But I think she also uses the phrase that we are the radically polite virus. Did she say polite? I was thinking maybe it was light. Oh, the radical light. The yeah, radical the warriors well. of the radical light. She calls them. Yeah. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah that that's her that's her group. You know, it's kind of like ditto heads or you know people these you know conservative talk show hosts always do that. Their their followers they come up with a name for them. Yeah. There is something very polite about her whole, at least a classic Christiane Northrup image. I mean, that's the image that we grew up with, with her on television and just this very mannered, you know, you know, approachable, but very 
New England mannered type of woman. To speak to this notion that she's that she's sort of generating and some sort of community, which is somewhat illusory, but it's part of the point of the episode to dig into like how actually brick and mortar it is, how how on the ground it actually is organized. Uh, there's these continual references that she makes within the Great Awakening videos to uh, other influencers that she's come into contact with uh, and to other media figures. And she references the the Marine with the bullhorn from Sacramento now, I can't be sure about who that is because she doesn't name the person, but I'm pretty sure that she's referring to Alan Hostetter, uh, who at around that time, not in Sacramento, but in San Clemente, California, which I can imagine she, her mixing those up. Uh, he's out with his bullhorn every day and risking arrest and then getting arrested several times at uh, anti-mask rallies and trying to tear down the fences that are around the public beaches there. And he winds up being indicted on on January 6th charges. So there's there are these hints, even back in May of 2020, of, of where this is all going. She loves to insert these people into her homilies that she delivers where where she'll be like, and then Charlie Freak said this, and then somebody else said this, as this guy Jenkins says whatever. And it's kind of a way to plant seeds where people are like, oh, who's that? I need to Google that. And then before you know it, you're watching videos about Holocaust denial. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a way that she sounds like she's totally sane and and reasonable and dispensing common sense uh but she's directing people into these really radical pathways part of the issue it's always she would defend herself and say well i never said anything about q and i never said that but it was always i mean she did talk about q first of all but she it was always dropping channels and youtube personalities who were much more out, you know, aggressive from the start than, than her image of being polite. Yeah. I mean, that, like that Charlie Freak guy, like he's a Nazi. <laughs> I mean, he's talking about how, uh, you know, the Nazis were goodly, godly people and they weren't actually gas chambers. They were lovely spas where they sent the Jews and they loved it. And she starts kind of using the same kind of phrases that these guys like goodly and godly and stuff. And it's, it's it's a way of kind of pilling people, you know, Q pilling people into this world. And you and you start to when you start looking up these people that she keeps referencing, you realize that she's she's following all these YouTubers and, and her whole life must be a house of horrors. She has this sort of constellation that she's found herself in, and she has a lot of influence. And I think that how she is different from the micro-influencers is that she can cross the threshold and actually interact with some of these other personalities because she has that former mainstream leftover credibility that she's cashed in for this newfound fall-from-grace version of herself and there's that appeal to people who are kind of lost in these parasocial relationships that she's sort of the a queen of in a way. And she was for decades interacting with other people who were masters of that. 
So I think that's just what her universe is. She's a name dropper, a shoulder rubber, you know, or elbow rubber, I guess. That's who who she is. And uh, she surrounds herself with other people who confirm her own sort of worldview. And they do that with each other. And that's sort of her M.O., and has been probably from the beginning. I'm really glad that you referenced the parasocial nature of all of these relationships because what she, I mean, that's obvious on the surface, looking at not only what she posts and links to, but also just the sort of dispersal of names in this kind of reference pool. But one of the things that she does is that she makes it sound like everybody is there. sounds like everybody is there at tea or everybody is sort of hanging out in the same church basement. Uh, there's, there's this homey quality uh, of, of, you know, everybody has just gotten a nice snack or something like that. And they're going to sit down and chat. Um, and so it's a very interesting way of, of, um, I don't know. She's she's doing something weird with globalization, where she's bringing it all back to Yarmouth, <laughs> as though as though everything can be in her house. Andy, I wanted to ask for the one hundred and one on main politics over the last ten years. Like, if if I were a Netflix executive, um, what would be the elevator pitch on what has been most important and compelling? Who the main figures have been? Uh, what is the scene of main politics? Because that's going to be the backdrop against this question of what's Northrop's stance within it. I mean, I'd say that Maine is kind of a microcosm for the rest of the country in that we've been extremely polarized between, you know, the the hard right and the mainstream kind of Democrats. Traditionally, we were kind of a Republican state, uh, but we have had a deep uh, sort of paranoid streak as well. You know, we have uh, governors who are elected by the Ku Klux Klan and the Know Nothing Party. And uh, back in 2010, uh, Governor Paul LePage was elected with support from the Tea Party. He really changed politics in a, in, a, in, a, in a profound way, I think, uh, just really bringing this far-right, blunt, uh, and, and really vicious style of politics mm-hmm. into Augusta. He's made all kinds of comments about uh, claiming that that black people are drug dealers who impregnate our white women. Uh, he once called the legislator a little socialist cocksucker on an, on a voicemail. Uh, he's just very crude and, and cruel. And he was kind of Trump before Trump. You know, he described himself as, as baby Trump. And, uh, I think that's why they liked each other when Trump came several times to Maine. But there's been a political realignment in Maine where we we are we're kind of a, a combination of like Vermont sort of crunchy granola Vermont style with a bit of Massachusetts kind of elitism, but also we're Northern Appalachia. Uh, you know, we're the most rural state in the country. We're the whitest state in the country, and we're the oldest state in the country by median age. And so we saw a lot of these former Democratic strongholds in some of the mill towns go far right with deindustrialization. And the coastal areas with a lot of the professionals and people like Christian Northrup went democratic when they used to be conservative. Uh, Alice, did you want to add something? Um, Well, I'm not 
from Maine originally. So I kind of have a little bit of an outsider. I came about 18 years ago and I would say, you know, I came here with the impression that Maine was very crunchy, very liberal. And um, having lived here through the first two LePage terms, it definitely illustrated to me um, the, uh, the, the under, the underpinnings of, of much of the culture in the state. I lived in Vermont for several years and uh, I was always told that I would never be from Vermont. Now you've been in Maine for 18 years and you still don't feel like you're from Maine. Is that going to be true for the rest of your life? Oh yes, for sure. I mean, part of it's me. I'm from like a completely different part of the country. I'm not from the Northeast and, and I don't have any roots here. Um, but no, I don't feel, I mean, I have friends whose parents were not from here and even they were told that they weren't Mainers. There's always been a, an xenophobic streak in Maine. Uh, you know, we always refer to people who didn't grow up here or are transplants to here as from away. And there's always been a lot of prejudice towards people from away. And Mainers also have had kind of a chip on their shoulder about wealthy people who buy homes here. And it goes way back to the, the 18th century when Massachusetts uh, controlled Maine. And we resented these wealthy aristocrats that would claim vast tracts of land here and kick out squatters and charge them high, uh, high costs for the land. Uh, and so there's always been a sort of class dynamic to it as well. And I think uh, LePage kind of uh, fed into that and, and, as well as this sort of white grievance politics. You know, I haven't heard uh, the phrase Northern Appalachia before. Uh, and then when you use the phrase from away, that's what um, Canadians in Atlantic Canada call people who are not from Atlantic Canada. So there's, there's kind of like a, um, uh, it's coming from two sides there, but we also have other historical tensions in, in Maine between Catholics and Protestants, uh, between Franco and Anglo-Americans. Uh, is that still alive and well? Well, it's interesting. It definitely was very alive in my father's lifetime. Just to give you a little bit of background, Maine was split in two at one point where uh, the the eastern part of the state was controlled by New France and the other half of the state in the, in the south and west was controlled by Massachusetts. And the French and Indian Wars were fought. Uh, the indigenous people lied with the French. And these were brutal, brutal wars, essentially race wars that were some of the most horrendous atrocities were committed then. Uh, and it's largely been forgotten by you know, it's not forgotten by the indigenous people, certainly. But in the 19th century, there was a lot of fear and resentment towards uh, Catholics and particularly French Catholics. Uh, we had uh, a very strong know nothing movement here where we had these uh, groups of uh, anti-Catholic mobs would uh, burn down a couple of churches, a Catholic meeting house in Bath and another one in Lewiston. They tarred and feathered a preacher. I mean, a, a a Jesuit priest in Ellsworth and ran him out of town on a rail. Uh, they, they would, uh, go into Irish shanty towns and, uh, tra- and just burn them down and, and beat, uh, the, the residents who lived there. And that was when the Irish came over, uh, during the Great Famine. 
And then in the in the 1880s, a lot of Franco-Americans came down from Quebec. And essentially, you know, we, we think of race uh, now in terms of skin color, but uh, we here in Maine and, and in the rest of New England, you know, Franco-Americans were considered an inferior race, essentially second-class citizens. And, you know, even during my dad, when my dad was growing up in the 50s, uh, the French were considered uh, dumb, and you know the whole the whole term "dumb French" was just very common. Uh, they were they were thought to just be people that were only take shop class in high school and worked in the mills. In the 1920s, um, one of the largest chapters of the Ku Klux Klan started in Maine. Uh, had anywhere from 70 to 100,000 members, 140,000, I've heard, uh, and and they were basically uh, an anti-Catholic organization in Maine because there was a great fear of the local Protestant population going way back into the mid-19th century and earlier uh, that uh, the Pope in Rome or the Whore of Babylon, they call it, was going to essentially take over America uh, and establish a, a, a Catholic theocracy. It was, it was a earlier great replacement theory that that all these catholic immigrants were going to they they had a lot of children and they were going to take over the country with their numbers um and so you know we have that history there was a lot of conspiracies about uh you know these S and M dungeons in the basements of, of catholic churches and um uh, all kinds of uh Stories about child, you know, uh, kind of QAnon style conspiracies about the way children are treated and things like that. And so that's always been here. We elected a governor on uh, the Ku Klux Klan, elected Governor Ralph Owen Brewster in 1924 in Maine. Um, and essentially, the main issue was uh, uh, prohibiting funding for. Um, Catholic schools. And he went on to become a congressman and a senator and a close ally of McCarthy. Uh, he was actually played by Alan Alda in the film The uh, Aviator about uh, Howard Hughes. But uh, he would he would hire uh, Klansmen to spy on labor unions to root, you know, to, to try to expose communists. Maine has had this reputation, I think, on the national level as have it being kind of a you know, old school, you know, New England Yankee moderates, you know, people like Bill Cohen, who voted for Nixon's impeachment, or uh, Margaret Chase Smith, who famously stood up to McCarthy, forgetting the fact that she wanted to literally nuke uh, <laughs> the USSR and Korea. Um, and she was just rapidly anti-communist. We've also had a really strong sort of paranoid uh, reactionary movement, along with kind of this New England do-gooder uh, impulse, uh, you know, where the birth of, of the temperance movement, you know, the Maine law was the law, first uh, prohibition law in, in, in the U.S. in 1851. So we're about contradictions, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a wonderful backdrop for understanding a character like Northrop, for sure. Uh, there's another historical piece that I know is really important that if we jump forward to the 60s, 
70s, a little bit into the 80s as well, there's a big back to the land movement. Uh, and I'm wondering, maybe I'll ask Alice, uh, do, did you catch the tail end of that, thinking that Maine was uh, a crunchy place to come and live in? <laughs> well, I was um, a college graduate in Chicago who couldn't get a job. So I was like, I'll just move and how about to Maine? Um, yeah, I did have the impression I, about, you know, living in a very beautiful, very, very beautiful place. Um, and I was interested in, you know, moving to somewhere I hadn't been before. So that was definitely in the back of my mind. It informed some of my impressions as a Midwesterner about northern New England, um, a place I've never visited before I moved here. Um, it was definitely in my cultural awareness about it. Um, and actually, my husband's father was a back-to-the-lander who studied with nearings, the nearings and when they lived in Maine. Um, so I came to know a little bit more about it after living here for a while. It definitely still has an influence on the culture and you will see references to the nearings pop up in random Facebook conversations. Well, I want to get back to that family name in a moment, but uh, Mooncat, is this part of your uh, history as well, family or otherwise, or are you a Mainer from birth? I'm a New Englander through and through, Southern New England specifically. I would say like where I grew up was, it's it's pretty Yankee. And uh, there's similar uh, tensions, you know, ethnically. But Maine has, a, there's just something stronger and there's more of a, a split. I don't know. There's like almost like a lack of a middle class up here in some ways. I wonder uh, if that's part of it, uh, you know, places like Massachusetts and Southern New England, people are more, uh, they're kind of forced to interact with each other a little more. And here it's a bubble. Yeah. And people from other, from Southern New England and other parts of the country moved up here for that ability to not interact and to buy tracts of land and maybe curate who they live next to on their commune. You also have a lot of sort of hybrid uh, redneck hippies. I've seen a lot of the, a lot of areas of Maine where the back of the landers came up and bred with the locals. And you just have these kind of redneck types wearing tie dye shirts and uh, <laughs> going out on their snowmobiles and uh, big mud trucks and burning out and stuff, smoking weed. It's a lot different than, than other sort of rural uh, enclaves that way. Tell me a little bit about the Nearing family. Helen and Scott Nearing, they wrote the book, The Good Life. It was kind of the back to the land Bible. Scott was a, was a socialist and he was uh, essentially blacklisted during the first Red Scare, I believe. And they lived in Vermont and did their kind of back to the land thing and then came to Maine. And their book was essentially, you know, how about how to get back to get back to the land and, and farm. And uh, I think they talked about sort of dividing their day up into work, re recreation, and time for philosophizing and stuff. It was very attractive to a lot of people um, who came from the 60s and, and, and all of the big social movements during the 60s. And then um, the rise of Nixon and uh, the Vietnam War continuing and the failure 
of uh, the movement to really change things profoundly in America. And so I, a lot of them came up to places like Maine where land was cheap, inspired by books like The, the Good Life, to get back to the land and focus on what they saw as more meaningful lifestyle, you know, having a bunch of kids building a homestead and things like that. You know, what happens with that storyline, too, is that um, it's it's based, as you say, on the premise that, well, we're not seeing any real sort of structural change. Uh, the war is still going on. Uh, there are still crooks in D.C. It's really better to rehabilitate this farmhouse and work on the internal self and also, you know, get, you know, close to the land again. But it also allows those people to sort of claim a liberal or progressive cred in their, in their background to say, oh, yeah, I was a hippie. Oh, yeah, I marched against such and such. Oh, yeah, I did all of that, which is kind of what we hear in some of Northrop's language, uh, you know, fairly regularly. And I think some of her, her OBGYN speaks work speaks to that, which is, which is, well, I've been on the forefront of women's freedom for a long time. So it's an interesting way in which, in which, uh, people's past affiliations can sort of be imported into a new future where they're not really that active. Mm -hmm. Um, what was your oh, sort of, uh, interaction with that material with, with, uh, things like the good life, Alice? Um, I personally am not a back to the lander. I grew up in a farming family in Southern Ohio. So I, I left the, the farm, I left the land. <laughs> right. I wanted to leave the land. Um, the Good Life Center still exists in Midcoast, Maine um, as a place you can go to. They have stewards who take care of it. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful place spot of land. It's hard to say. It's like I, I had no personal connection to it, but I can see why is enticing to people. If you're feeling overwhelmed by the modern world, it feels like simplifying and coming to something more true. If you can eat oatmeal every morning and you ground the oats yourself and like things like that, you know, I, I, mean, I don't mean to patronize them, but it, I think it is really um, in a, a bit of an escapist. You know, my parents were kind of involved in that and a lot of their friends were. And you know, people forget that the Nearings had a lot of other income coming in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, That's pretty much always the case, I think. It yeah. always is. I mean, the cliche here in Maine is the trust funder who comes up here and, and becomes a farmer, you know. Right. Uh, and, and just makes everybody raise their eyebrows. But one thing that's one thing about the back to the land movement is it really did change Maine demographically and politically. Our population has basically been in decline since the 19th century when everybody realized that you could go out west and dig down a few feet and there's no rocks. We have glacial soil. It's terrible soil. Uh, and so a, a lot of people left. And when the Back to the Land movement came, you know, they put kids in the schools, the schools were thriving, uh, and it, it changed our politics as well because a lot of these people were very left and, and progressive, and, and, and that did change things. But there's always been 
a little bit of a reactionary strain in the back to the land movement. There's a lot of this kind of yeomanry ideology, uh, which I think is very deeply ingrained in America. This whole idea of having your own plot of land and being an independent producer as opposed to some parasite who lives off the wealth of others, whether you're at the top or at the bottom. The conspicuous consumption thing is totally there still with that element. It's just a different form. It's, you know, there's still that outward signaling, this is who I am and I'm a part of this ecological system and I'm, I'm grounded and everything, but they still have to get gas and they still have to go to Christmas, you know, in Connecticut. They choose to have a lifestyle, but it's it, it definitely is generally funded to some extent out from the outside. I think what happened to a lot of these people is they ended up trying to do everything and they ended up getting divorced and moving back to the city. I know my parents have a lot of those stories about people who are, you know, my dad and this guy were like, they were like, oh, yeah, we can slaughter a cow. And they end up spending the entire night trying to saw up pieces of cow and put it into the freezer with a chainsaw. Like they just had no idea what the hell they were doing. And now there's more like there's the, the second generation and third generation of some of these people. Some of them have become farmers, but they've they've understood how to. Uh, get along in the market. And a lot of them have become like organic farmers and stuff, but they're business people. You know, they've, they've learned how to survive. They've, they've learned that you can't just retreat from society and form your own society somewhere else. You still have to swim in the sea of capitalism. Something that I've noticed, this is somewhat tangentially related to the, the larger topic, is there's still a lot of people who promote the back to the land and homesteading and homeschooling. And what I've noticed is there's a real contingent of folks who fund that or purport to fund it. I wonder what their credit card statements look like through MLMs, through the wife doing MLM sales, doing doTERRA, Usborne, and you know, hawking products to fund, you know, homeschooling their child or as part of the whole larger culture now. That's definitely, I feel like, entered the second or third generation of the homesteaders in Maine who aren't professional farmers. One thing that we should note, too, is that uh, Christiane Northrup is like the middle generation of three generations of MLM sellers, too, yeah. uh, which is one of the income streams. Turning to uh, her sort of docket a little bit more specifically, Alice, you and I first connected back when we started to cover Northrup. You told me that you'd run afoul of uh, a media mogul named Reed Brower, uh, who had written or had published a kind of puff piece on Northrop after she had uh, sort of come out with her more strident anti-vax views. Can you walk us through that story a little bit? What happened there? 
Sure. Um, so uh, that was in April 2020 that Reed Brower is a media mogul who owns the vast majority of print media here in Maine, including our two largest newspapers, if I'm correct, and just dozens of small town papers across the state. You know, he, start, he started small himself and then just over the years just amassed this big print empire here in the state. Um, and one of his publications is a women's magazine. It's a it's a free, you know, glossy that's distributed in the grocery stores and inserted in newspapers. I'm definitely the target demographic for that paper uh, or that news that magazine. And um, because I was involved in the vaccination referendum over the two years prior to 2020, I become really familiar with Christiane Northrup because she was very active in that the anti-vax side of that. Um, So we had seen, you know, through the course of that towards spring 2020, she had become just sharing more and more far right material on her social medias. Um, Once the pandemic hit, which was right after the referendum vote in March, um, you know, this is fake. This isn't real. This is, you know, going sharing Cernovich content, um, just going really far right. And then in April 2020, this magazine hit. And obviously we understood that they had their print schedule set ahead of time. And but we were we there was a lot of feedback where we were giving them online about this is really inappropriate. She's a pandemic denier. She's sharing really far right anti-vax content. So what can you do about this? It was myself and a few other folks. And then it just grew into this very big social media story in the state over the course of a couple weeks um, where Reed was accusing myself and a few other folks of violently threatening them, which absolutely did not happen. (laughs) I don't violently threaten people. Um, Cancel culture. Cancel culture. You're you're suppressing our free speech. If this magazine isn't for you, don't say anything about it. Well, it is for me. I'm a middle-aged white woman in Maine. Like I am your audience, and we are all your audience. And we're saying that we don't appreciate this. And what can you do to fix it? <laughs> um, we were just giving them feedback. I don't know, like people do in 2020, and um, it really culminated in their largest advertiser pulling their advertisements, Coffee by Design, and saying on their, they're a huge company in Maine, very well-beloved company. And they said, you know, we're not going to advertise this magazine anymore because of the Northrop cover. We're not going to support this. Um, We're not, we don't support her views. Um, That made Reed extremely irate. It made Christiane very irate. Um, Reed took to, I think he wrote three columns in his various publications about how, you know, we were a group of animals coming after him and we were a hate group. And it was just (laughs) the most surreal experience I've ever had. I can't imagine anywhere else I've lived where like someone with a platform like Reed would take to it to call his readers animals and call us sharks. It's it's extremely fragile. And I'm wondering, I, I'm imagining there was no like actual engagement with the criticism at all. No, it was like, you're trying to cancel us. And he, he messaged me personally on Facebook too, which was also, I was kind of blown away because these people have huge platforms and I have no platform whatsoever. I have no followers. I'm not a social media presence. So it's just odd to be engaging in this conversation with him where he was just reiterating like how wrong we were. 
are. Well, the the irony too was that he was writing and posting as Maine Women's Magazine. So it was like a man behind the account fighting with all these women on Who Facebook. didn't like the content. It was, <laughs> it was so surreal. So when you started covering her, that's why I reached out because I was like, oh, I'm so glad someone else sees this who isn't here in Maine. Yeah. Now, tell me a little bit more about the the No on One campaign, uh, because this was um, a an attempt to uh, overturn the school vaccination processes in Maine, and Northrop was part of that drive. Am I right about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'd say probably about 2018, um, there was a law, well, 2018 into 2019. It's hard to really remember. Um, there was a law brought to the legislature. It was, you know, parent-driven law um, asking to remove uh, religious and philosophical exemptions for school vaccination. I mean, this is like the basic series of vaccines. Um, So uh, that law passed the legislative process um, and Christiane was very involved on the opposite side in testifying against the law, trying to stop the law from being passed. Um, She has spoken about this extensively about how she can't believe they didn't listen to her and she brought them books to read and she was, she just couldn't believe it. Because she's the only doctor in Maine, right? Yes. <laughs> you she's know not- who I am. <laughs> right, right. right. And that goes back to like the read thing because he, his whole defense was she's been on Oprah and she's written 18 books or like, I don't know. It's just like, how dare you? And um, so, yeah, she, so part of our political process here is if people collect signatures, they can get a referendum on the ballot. So Mainers for Health and Parental Rights and the, what became the Yes on One campaign collected enough signatures, which um, made it a ballot a ballot issue. We were basically, as a state, voting on whether to uphold the law, which would be a no a no vote against the referendum, or yes to overturn the law. Um, so Christiane was extremely involved in that. Um, she was a major fundraiser. They auctioned off like a luncheon with her um, to help fund the campaign at a very very polite Tony restaurant. And um, she made uh, Facebook videos with her daughter, Kate, about where Kate, Kate would kind of lob these like softball questions. And then Christian would answer them as a doctor about how vaccines are bad for children. And it's, you know, parental freedom was the question. Um, so that vote happened on March 3rd, 2020, where the, went to the polls and the um, pro-vaccine side, the no question, no one won, um, was supported by 73% of voters. So it was a very definitive refutation of the anti-vax side. You crushed it. Crushed it. And um, it was, I think, the largest referendum loss <laughs> since like the 1930s in the state. And let, and let me just uh, clarify, um, in Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom, uh, in the new edition anyway, uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure whether she references it in the old edition, but Northrop comes out against the Gardasil HPV vaccine. But is she actually campaigning, campaigning in the no on one or the yes on one side against all 
school-related vaccinations like MMR and, you know, diphtheria and the, like the whole series? Absolutely. Part of the video she did with Kate was Kate asked, well, did, did vaccines really stop all these diseases? And then Christiane did her whole spiel about how it wasn't vaccines that stopped these diseases. And Part of Christiane's rhetoric, and her, if you would dig in 20, early, late 2019, early 2020, she would be telling people in her Facebook page in the comment sections, I remember this comment so clearly, she said, people who take their children to pediatricians are just indoctrinating them into a life of drug dependency or just through vaccines. I mean, just like these really extreme um, comments. So... Uh, yes, Gardasil is not a required um, vaccine for children to attend school. I mean, we're talking about the very basics. Mooncat, what was what was your memory of that uh, vaccination battle? Uh, did that did that loom large in your sort of vision? There was definitely some debate uh, among people who I knew about it. And uh, I know even some couples where one person voted one way, one voted another. The, the main thing I noticed was after the pandemic began, a lot of people who voted uh, yes, not fully invested in it, changed their tune after and said, uh, I I don't agree with this idea anymore because some of this is, well, it's, it, it's rooted in this philosophical exemption thing, which is nebulous. And if they had, in my opinion, it's just the next step would be to have funding for their homeschooling or state funding for religious schools. This is just about taking apart public schools, most of the people who were driving the whole yes on one thing are homeschoolers. They don't even intersect with public school people. You know, they don't have nine to five jobs. They don't have a lot of the typical, you know, the things that bring people into contact with each other in public schools that they create community in their own ways. And these people have not all of them, but many of the people that were driving it had the luxury to not have their kids in public school and to try to find new ways to extend what they, their privilege even further was how I looked at it. It was, it was interesting too, because the, the vote was on March 3rd and by the end of the following week, the whole state was shut down because of the pandemic. And many of the leaders um, like Representative Laurel Libby and a few other folks immediately pivoted to the anti-mask protests um, and Northrop was right on that train with them. So they already had an infrastructure through the, the yes on one to Absolutely. slide right into pandemic denialism. It wasn't the, it wasn't like, uh, oh, we've, we've just been opposing childhood vaccines. Now we're being smacked by a pandemic. We should change our minds. No. It's more like Double this down. proves our point. People are getting yep. sick. Exactly. This and 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 the country they're trying to take your rights away and right. the the whole narrative. Yeah, you would think you would think that there would be some self reflection to have your massive defeat and then go into a huge worldwide pandemic, but no. 
And a lot of them now are are basically saying that, you know, these infectious diseases don't even exist and that it's all uh, psychosomatic or people aren't uh, channeling enough positive energy or something. It, it's really gone really around the bend. Alice, there, there's another aspect here, and I think it relates to the fact that I think anybody who encounters uh, Northrop's work online uh, has got to ask at one point or another, what is she actually like as a doctor? Like, what is, what is you know, what kind of clinic did she run? Like, did she actually serve her clients, you know, in a reasonable way? And you've pointed to some neighborhood chatter about how she interacts with patients. Um, I don't think you'll be able to say too much and we're not going to be able to make allegations here, but there are some questions to explore about the outcomes for patients who go to a doctor who doesn't believe in viruses or who thinks that like Louise Hay's take on cancer is reasonable. Um, is there anything that you can say about that in, in general terms from the chatter that you've come across? Or that screaming into a paper bag is an appropriate treatment for fibroids or applying... What? I didn't hear that. Screaming into a paper bag? If you ask, if you pose this question on main fa- in f- main Facebook groups, did any of you see Christian Northrup as a doctor? You hear some fairly horrifying stories from right. people. Now, again, like I never saw her as a doctor. I can't comment on that. I moved here after she was largely not practicing. You hear some very horrifying stories that this was mo- that this was medical care that was being provided to people in the state of Maine in the. 20th and 21st century. (laughs) It also illustrated to me that people are still afraid of her status and afraid to talk about it openly. I mean, she did say that she stopped practicing medicine because of the lawsuits in in her, I think it was the Dartmouth uh, alumni newsletter. She said a few stories. She's she's mentioned lawsuits, um, and and I think as an OBGYN and any surgeon, you know that's a a concern for a lot of doctors. That's why they are have insurance. Um, but it starts to add up when you see hear some of the stories that people say about her care. And then she's also said she's gave, she gave up her license in order to speak freely about topics that she couldn't otherwise speak about. Hey everyone. Matthew in the edit bay here. I just need to add some detail to Alice's answer here because the day after we recorded, Mooncat sent me a clip of Northrop being interviewed on the right-wing platform American Media Periscope, I guess about topics she couldn't previously speak about. So here's a sample of her recent doctoring. We are in the ascension of humanity. Jesus showed the way. We're now in the ascension of humanity. And as a doctor, I want to say to people, there may be increases in seizures, headaches, sleeplessness. This is all more and more light is coming into your body. We're ascending to a more spiritual dimension. So the last thing you want to do is go and get yourself on all this medication. A, uh, A seizure is like a lightning bolt of light coming into your body. You can go get it checked out, but chances are very good. They're not going to find a thing. And then they're just going to put you on medication. So um, just talk to a friend, really bad headache. She never has headaches. She's resting. And I said, you say to your body, listen, I understand we're ascending here. Relax, let more and more light in and just let the headache go away, please. I don't want to suffer. And it worked. She was fine. So a lot of stuff is going on that's very unusual. So 
You heard that right. Seizures are ascension events. So three comments I'll make. Uh, The first is personal. As probably a former seizure sufferer, uh, hasn't happened for me in about 30 years or so, she can just suck an egg. Uh, Secondly, this interpretation of seizures was actually central to how one of the cults I was in, uh, Endeavor Academy in Wisconsin Dells, framed the obvious cognitive injuries of the leader, Charles Anderson, who would often have what seemed to be minor neurological events that would leave him vacant or slurring. He eventually died of a stroke. So the correlation between brain injury and light entering into your body and meditative bliss or shaking or speaking in tongues, also known as going aphasic, is not original in New Age circles. What's dangerous about it, besides the general fact that it dissuades people in neurological crisis from seeking medical help, is that the correlation was actually part of my recruitment into Endeavor Academy. The cult offered a spiritual framework for my otherwise unexplainable neurological events and perhaps injuries. Lastly, if it isn't obvious, specifically tagging seizures and headaches after denying the existence of COVID is an almost explicit pivot to denying long COVID. Okay, back to the panel. Would you say that Northrop has uh, a sort of on-the-ground influence in terms of alternative medicine practitioners in the state? Sure. I mean, she shared um, some public venues and stages with um, naturopaths in in Maine, especially during Yes on One, um, and with some uh, DOs who who are maybe on the fringe. Now, there are a lot of DOs, which is doctor of osteopathy in Maine, because we have a DO school here. So it's, I'm not trying to, I'm not at all putting that credential under the bus. There, 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 there are some fringe pra- practitioners who are happy to share the stage with her, um, to reference her work. Um, you see her referenced on social media still by naturopaths. Um, I think she does still have an influence um, I did want to say that uh, another thing that I was made aware of by people who saw her um, as a doctor in her private practice was there was a very um, like supplements figured in very heavily into what she sold, prescribed, or had on display at her at her offices. With regard to this sort of in-person networking and uh, her uh, ability to, and the social capital involved in appearing with naturopaths during this particular campaign and getting more and more involved in in politics, I wanted to turn uh, to you, Mooncat, and talk a little bit about what you've been seeing in terms of Northrop's interaction with Maine politics recently, one of the things that she helped to organize and I think was a featured guest in was the Arise USA QAnon Freedom Tour, which did it hit the state in July of 2021? Is that when it was? And the first stop was Belfast, right? The Arise USA tour was a uh, tour that was basically a total disaster Robert David Steele uh, had this grand, well, just real quickly, Robert David Steele is a self-described ex-CIA spy. Uh, He's actually- Claims to be. Claims to be. He's deceased. He died 
three weeks after uh, the event from COVID. He has this insane backstory and he's very, very deeply connected to QAnon. Essentially, he just came to this event and no one was really paying attention to his his thing. They He was sort of like a, a side sideline thing. Most people who were uh, upset about this event, because uh, there were quite a lot of people that were upset about it, most of them were upset about Sheriff Mack, who is a uh, constitutional sheriff and was connected to the Oath Keepers. So... He's on the board. <laughs> yeah, he's like the leader, or he was one of the higher ups. This event was it was very surreal, and uh, Heidi Sampson, who's a state rep, uh, shared the stage with both Robert David Steele and with Northrop. Uh, Kevin Jenkins was there as well. I actually attended, uh, I sort of stood on the outskirts of the protest witnessing things. And um, I don't even know where to start with the whole thing because it it was generally surreal. There was interaction with people who were in the event and they would come and try to have dialogue with the people who were protesting. Some people were doing it in good faith. Kevin Jenkins, he's one of Northrop's major cohorts. He came up to the crowd and started getting really into people's faces and yelling at them, why do you hate me because I'm black, uh, repeatedly to them. That's his thing. Yeah. And uh, the whole, so there was some trolling from their side trying to get reactions with and they had their cameras out. You know, they're they're trying to get riled people to rile, be riled up. For the most part, the protesters handled themselves pretty pretty well. And a lot of people knew people who were in the event and going to to be there. Robert David Steele also had a lot to say about Andy O'Brien. He went off on him pretty hard said he had all of his bank account information and uh yeah he said i was connected to the russian mob and uh les wexner and jeffrey epstein oh wow yeah it's still on his website (laughs) it's still on his website on his zombie website i think so yeah it was one of the last posts he had he just went off in front of the crowd it's kind of an honor uh, to be <laughs> memorialized or I don't know. I don't know if that's the right word, but um, Andy, I'm sorry that that happened. Were you at the event as well? No, I, I was going to go. And then I was like, yeah, I don't, you know, it wasn't far from my house, but I'm just, I, I, I know what to expect there. Um, I, I, and then all of a sudden I started getting all these reporters texting me for a comment on that. I, 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 Considered a badge of honor. We're laughing, but um, implying that you have connections to Jeffrey Epstein is like one step away from calling you a pedophile. And I'm wondering if that had if that generated backlash as well. 
No, I mean, I've had a lot of these, uh, these, these, not, I fought, I research a lot of Nazis and far right groups and things like that. And the first thing they do when they're cornered is call you a pedophile. So I, I there's videos out there of these guys calling me a pedophile and stuff. And it, 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 it becomes one of these things where they use it so much, it almost doesn't even have any power anymore, which is, you know, kind of disturbing in a way, but, um, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. Now, Naomi Wolf also visited uh, Augusta around that same time. I don't know if she was tagging along with the tour. She gave a fiery speech. Uh, how how did that go over in the state? Uh, I I have the impression that uh, she presents a little bit more respectability for for maybe a broader demographic. Did it work? I just want to set this up. There was a lobster fisherman protest going on at the same time and like this is a a tactic that most of the groups in maine use they piggyback or coattail ride on any other protest naomi wolf had showed up and shelly rudnicki who is a another politician they demanded to see janet mills and were not allowed access so Wolf made this into a big deal. And uh, that was when she did, she did this speech and I think they were hoping there would be all these rabid lobstermen ready to in- storm the state house. They were already home by this time when she was there. Because they have to start working at four in the morning. Of course. And uh, she just, she had a, very, she wrote it first. She has a piece of paper and she's reading. First, she tells everybody that they're her people and she gets into this sort of in-group language, just how happy that she has these people that have her back. And then she talks about how it's the state house is the saddest day of her life because she couldn't go to the State house and talk to Janet Mills. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous though, just that she just came up and knocked on her door, the governor's door, without any notice. Just, why would you talk to me? I mean, it's kind of the amazing thing about Maine in general. Like, uh, my backyard neighbor in the town I formerly lived in was our U.S. senator. You have people who go and stand at the governor's car, like, and you have the owner of all the media in the state of Maine DMing you about how you're being too loud on Facebook. Like, it's very strange. It's a very strange place about how we're all one degree of separation from one another. And actually, you have more access to power than people seem to feel they do. Yes. I mean, because so much of this this discourse is nobody's listening to me. I don't have contact with anybody. Uh, There's a big, huge, um, you know, abstract state apparatus that's just sort of controlling our lives. But really... They're talking about their neighbors. They are. I've lived other. Pl- I mean, I'm not not to harp on it, but I'm. I've in other places. I can't imagine these things happening that I've lived in. I, you know, like being able to like talk to my U.S. senator over the, the fence separating our yards. Like it's very unique to this. And I didn't live in a Tony's place. This was in the middle of town. Like this is. It's just a very unique situation we have up here. Let me just ask about the lobster guys because I just want to get this clear that Naomi Wolf and whoever was handling her, they wanted to perhaps whip the lobstermen up into their rally, kind of like parasite-wise. Really? 
maybe an ultimate fantasy and their their best version of things you know there'd be a sort of mains january 6 but I, I don't i don't think it was really her primary intent i don't think that's what she had intended necessarily it's just the rhetoric especially after january 6 was extremely uh, it was obvious she knows what she's doing she's very very smart and uh i think i think that she just tumbled out of credibility very fast and is just looking for people to to help her stay relevant and she's scraping the bottom of the barrel at this point and that's that was an example of it yeah and we we do have lobster professional you know lobster fisher people who serve as state legislators i mean it, it is a thing it definitely and one of the um most vocally anti-vaccine um members of the state legislator is a lobsterman named billy bob what's his last name falkingham falkingham um yes so i mean they definitely i think they saw a natural connection there like they could get billy bob falkingham to 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 bring them over and create a create a scenario that's an amazing name just gotta say i mean for for northern appalachia and also this like deep anglo history billy bob Falkingham. Falkingham. That's fantastic. He has an interesting past too. Uh, I remember when he was running for office, a Democrat sent out a press release that said he got arrested for assault in 2000 and throwing a bucket of human feces at somebody. Um, oh, <laughs> a bucket? <laughs> yeah, a, a whole bucket. bucket. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was Wait, on his did boat. Did he go out and collect it? It was on his, on his boat. boat. I get it. Right. But I, right. I, oh, that would make sense. I think the larger story here is that like a lot of these groups are trying to co-op all these little uh, these grievances, whether it's the anti-vaccine movement or lobstermen protesting offshore wind or anti-immigrant movement. All they they anti-trans is the big one now. You know, litter boxes and furries and all that nonsense. They're just trying to mobilize whatever kind of grievances they can for political aims. They are trying to go access the working class, too. I mean, Northrop has shown up at the Bath Ironworks protests as well. And, you know, I I think they, they see these as channels to a populace that they don't normally intersect with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and it, and it Bath Ironworks is like one of the largest employers in the state. They build navy ships, uh, and they they had a vaccine mandate at the shipyard. And a lot of those guys are pretty conservative, ex military, and stuff. And so there was a real anti vax mood there. And I don't even think the I don't even think the mandate ever really was it was implemented but anyway they all these different kinds of groups like uh like northrop's group and the people who have the trump trains that ride around the countryside uh they were all there but it was again it was like it was like the lobster or whatever it was really interesting because there was a lot of talk about almost like these are a lot of people that are just very anti-union but suddenly they're all about worker struggles when it came to vaccines um you know, I, I wanted to do this episode, Mooncat, because you've been doing this amazing coverage on the related 
Northrop events and networks. And I was really stunned to see this particular set of clips from her giving a speech in a church. There's one little piece of film that you put onto Twitter, and we can run it now, where uh, you say that in the caption, standing at the pulpit in a church, explaining to her followers that the right is literally a spiritual path rooted in love, as opposed to the left rooted in fear. So remember what I told you, the frequency of sovereignty and love and truth is 5,000, maybe a million times greater. You can do so much more good over here on the right. It strengthens your immunity. It ignites growth and repair. It activates more DNA codes. It lengthens telomeres. It's the fountain of youth over here. You watch CNN. You actually believe Shaw. You think that Governor Mills is keeping us safe. And that's fear. And you know, here's the thing that I do, okay? You triple jab, all of that. You don't get it. You stay in fear. You keep voting for these same demons. You're going to die anyway. You're going to die sooner. The real estate prices will go down. And you know, things surprise me better. I mean, that's how I get through the night. Because it's so bad. It's so bad. But what is it doing? It is putting all of us in a crucible and remembering who we are as humans, fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. And without these demons, we'd still be watching Netflix and, you know, just, we wouldn't be doing it. Instead, we're rising up like these. Next slide. Mooncat, can you set this up for us a little bit more? What, what church is this taking place at? How many people are in attendance? Is this part of a series of talks? I'm not sure how often this has been occurring. These were the shot, the, the footage I gathered was from a couple incidents uh, where she spoke at uh, Alice. We were talking about it being the Unitarian Church uh, in Brunswick. Yes, one of their um, groups, um, when you go to the, the page, uh, how to connect to a group um, for Brunswick, it links to the Unitarian Universalist Church in Maine. Now, I've never been inside that church, and I, I am personally actually blocked from that Instagram um, account, so I didn't get to see the footage. I haven't set up a burner Instagram to be able to view their footage, but someone who runs that page decided to block me. I've never commented on it, but you know. In the video, there's maybe 12 people. She is doing her usual PowerPoint presentation uh, in this church uh, where she goes through a whole litany of uh, different conspiracies. Um, Some of them are are pretty passe. Uh, Some of them are a kind of modern, typical Q stuff. There's an overlying idea of this dichotomy between good and evil and that they're the good guys and everyone who doesn't agree with them are infernal and demon, demo, demoniac or however she calls it. She has a, just a general real binary view of, of humanity, uh, which she kind of, that's the umbrella of, of, of everything for her. Um, all of the minor, you know, the little other conspiracies that she inserts into it all. Uh, it's just, it's just flavoring for just sort of a 
spiritual superiority complex ultimately. And that's on full display uh, when she's at the pulpit. It's she, it, honestly, I don't know how well this sort of thing is going to go for her. She's not particularly charismatic in my opinion, but she does seem to have a collection of people that are following along with her. Um, and I believe it's probably based off their own personal investment, sort of a sunk cost fallacy or something where they've gone along this far and, you know, they may as well see how long it plays out. But I did see recently in a video, uh, where she was speaking, uh, I can't remember his name, but he's a big conspiracy guy. And she was saying that their group is now encouraging one another to, or she's encouraging her group to not go to the doctor if they have an ailment, to talk to each other first and seek help within their own community before seeking medical attention somewhere else. Something's bound to happen something's going to go wrong at some point. That's the main stuff that I'm thinking of like down the line, how, how this is going to infect uh, or affect some of these people, Robert David Steele specifically dying three weeks after the main stands up event. They never mentioned anything about him dying or they have nothing to say about him. Neither does Heidi Sampson, Shelley Rudnicki, any of the politicians, nothing. And so this indefinite, plausible deniability that they wrap themselves in is, to me, one of the scarier aspects of it, because they can believe whatever they want to. We we called out, I mean, a number of times, like, we called out these legislators for uh, appearing at these events and, and um, calling the CDC, like uh, comparing them to Nazis and Joseph Mengele and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, there's just, they just, they'll deny that they know anybody like uh, David, Robert David Steele. Uh, and, and, and just, uh, oh, I didn't know that person. You know, it's, it's typical sort of plausible deniability. Uh, but one of the things that I think is, kind of disturbing about what Northrop is doing is she's bringing together all these dif- disparate groups. She'll appear beside Christ- hardcore Christian dominionists uh, like uh, uh, John Linehan, who are just, they want to create a theocracy in in the country. And and this is a guy who's running for the state house right now. Uh, they'll, they'll appear at local, Rep- she, she's constantly appearing at local Republican Party meetings, uh, town and county meetings, She'll appear at evangelical churches and then she'll go to a healing arts fair or a solstice showcase or something with a bunch of sort of bohemian, uh, crunchy granola hippie types. Um, and, and you'll see people at these events where you'll have these like really hardcore patriotic militia Christian people uh, next to young hippie women, all like, you know, saluting the flag and uh you know you see these hippies with playing around with guns on instagram and stuff and it's just uh you realize 
how this is really a fascist movement. The way that she she describes their opponents as subhuman, or she says they're not even a human species. They're cockroaches. They're a regressive species, um, and and they must be stamped out and destroyed. I mean, this is the kind of behavior that leads to genocide, in my opinion, this kind of rhetoric. Uh, and, and we should take it very seriously. Alice, I feel like I want to ask you this. Uh, what do you think it is about Northrop that allows her to slide with such ease between all of these groups? Like, what is the glue? Um, what, what, how is she able to, um, first of all, be at ease amongst so many different characters, but also appeal to so many at the same time? What do you think the magic is? Well, I think that there's a, a human um, tendency to want to be close to status, and she represents, she still represents, she has a lot of cachet. I mean, she is very famous, very wealthy, um, and I think people want to be close to that. There's an element of people who want to be near that. She somehow transcends the typical re- feeling that people have about people with a lot of wealth because she says, well, I'm speaking to you and I'm on your side and I'm here to be your doctor and to tell you the truth about what's happening. But people, you know, still want to be near that. I think it's appealing to people. Um, They want to be invited to her home. Um, They want to be in that circle where, you know, she's having sweet potato fries with you and discussing what's, what's really happening and how we can prepare for it. So I think that's part of um, why she can appeal across so many different groups. I mean, I think we can't discount that she's had 20 or 30 years of media training. Um, she's a professional speaker. Um, she's a professional media presence. And I think she can employ that. And I don't know. I mean, it is something about Maine. We were talking about it earlier, about how you have this kind of immediate adjacency to so many, to your political leaders and to each other, uh, because we have such a small population in this state. Yeah, it seems like she's accessible in some strange way. Yeah, yeah. I don't know the details of her fall from grace as well as some others do, but it does seem that she was pretty lonely when the the lockdown happened and everything. And she opened herself up to people to come into her life. And she had a very personal loss. She, her, her partner died at that exact same time, which I think um, resonated with a lot of people. Um, and that vulnerability resonates with people. And, and she is, you know, using the medium of social media, you can really have those confessional moments with people which is different from being on the PBS stage. As dangerous as her uh, propaganda has been, I don't think we can help but admire uh, just how um, skillful uh, a media personality and really a politician she is, and also a cultural figure. I'm thinking as you're describing all of these sort of places in which she connects, it's almost like I can imagine uh, a pavilion dedicated to her at Epcot Center or something like that, where it's like there's the, 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 the mansion in Yarmouth and it has a beautiful garden and there's the harp and there's the sweet potato fries and there's also a gun range out back and there's also like a rally going on and there's also like what else would be there? Well, she's, she, she talked extensively about there being an alien portal in her backyard that was that featured really oh. prominently in some of her um, 
her videos. Um, well, maybe maybe like at the end of the shooting range, there's like the portal opens up or something like that. Yeah. And if you get enough targets or something that that, yeah. I, that it um, I don't that know. It she's, she's just, like you said, she's really good. She's really good at, and I think some of these figures that we're talking about, if, you know, are really good at, at um, you know, being everything that people kind of need at the moment. Rounding up, um, I've got three last questions, one for each of you. Uh, Andy, how influential do you think Northrop will be over time in the state of Maine? I I honestly think she might be waning on the wane because she's really made a name for herself uh, in the anti-vaccine movement and the COVID denialist uh, uh, cause. I don't think the vaccine issue is going to go away. Uh, but I feel like it'll be overshadowed by other things. Right now, we're in a really rough political climate in Maine and in the country, but especially in Maine, you know, we have a Democratic trifecta, but the polls are really difficult right now. And it's, it is possible that we could get a lot of these people, including people that, uh, Northrop uh, has endorsed and worked with uh, elected and they could have some real power soon. Um, so I don't, I don't know if Christian, Christian Northrop will be at the front of all this, but I think her influence will continue. I guess that's what I would say. Um, Cause I think that, I think that they're all united right now by their, just galaxy of conspiracies and their hatred for the left and, and, and Democrats. Uh, but it's kind of a fragile coalition. What has been interesting is to see Christian Northrop's followers, a lot of them were sort of ostensibly liberal. Some of them are LGBTQ, become red-pilled through the anti-vax and, and COVID denialist movement and following Northrop. And so that now they're anti-Black Lives Matter. They're anti, they've become far-right, you know, gun-toting uh, racists. You know, I think that that is going to continue. I, I just don't know if it's, if it's going to be the vaccine and the medical freedom that's going to be driving it. It could be something else. I mean, I think already anti-trans uh, bigotry is really taking over. Mooncat, what's next on the uh, undercover schedule for you? I'm continually just <laughs> searching through this stuff and... I have a little bit of an archive of stuff that I'm still haven't released yet. Mainly I'm just continuing to bounce around uh following the meet their media as they create it. I mean, these groups they come and go. Uh the personalities in these groups are very conspicuous for a certain amount of time then they sometimes just disappear. Um, just speaking to real quick to the uh, whether or not Christiane's sort of cult aspirations will go anywhere. I predict that it will fail because of infighting, because that's how all of these organizations dis- destroy themselves. Alice, I wanted to ask you, uh, what's it like being a parent in Maine right now? 
especially after the pandemic and everything that's gone down? Well, I think everyone, I mean, in Maine and in the whole country is really affected by uh, the the issue that's on everyone's mind right now is the violence and gun violence in schools. Um, we all live, most of us live in towns that are like Uvalde, Texas, or Sandy Hook, Connecticut. I mean, that's the size of most of our towns here. And so I think that's what's on everybody's mind right now um, in terms of pandemic outcomes. I know a lot of folks are really struggling with um, housing and childcare. I mean, housing and childcare have been pretty much decimated over the course of the pandemic, particularly because I think our population increased by 25, 30,000 people in the past two years, um, moving from other parts of the country here. Um, so I think I think you have we we kind of settled this school vaccine question in a really decisive manner, pivoted right into the pandemic, and then people now are just seriously. A lot of folks are really just struggling with having a place to live and and a job, you know, a job that pays enough and childcare and feeling if is it okay? Is their kid going to come home from school at the end of the day? I said three last things, but because you brought up uh, Uvalde, uh, I just wanted to finish with this clip. It might be a little bit dark to finish on, but this is Northrop speaking to a guy named uh, Jeff Weitzman. And it really sort of encapsulates one of the more disturbing aspects of Northrop's messaging, which has been her willingness to tacitly, but sometimes openly endorse violent rhetoric. So Jeff Weitzman is a cancer denial activist, uh, and he's put her little monologue here under some uh, nice slide guitar. There's an illusion with you that, oh, Chris Northrop, she's come to this place now where she's on this plateau and she doesn't have to feel anymore. Oh my God. You know, there are parts of me, and, and so I've learned to love them, okay? Here's an example. All right, let's see. Do I get to pick the firing squad? to kill these demons? Now, if you were a new age person and you read books like You Cannot Afford the Luxury of a Negative Thought, you would be afraid that that thought is going to somehow lead you to, oh, 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 cancel, cancel, cancel. I had a bad thought. I wanted to harm that person. No. I like those thoughts. I listen to Zev Zelenko say, I am all for love and forgiveness, and if anyone comes near one of my children, I will have no problem putting a bullet in their head. I want people to own that part of themselves. Amen. Because that is righteous anger. It is a cause of health. That guitar was supposed to... It's supposed to make us feel warm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, closing closing thoughts. How's that going to go over in Maine? Does the slide guitar help, do you think? I mean, I find it absolutely terrifying um, because there are people who will really love that comment, that that commentary. And I so I find her, her the way she paused, I was like, no, I want you to have those thoughts. It's seriously terrifying to me because I don't think I don't think anyone like her she wouldn't be killing anyone she wouldn't be pulling the gun but pulling the trigger she would be she's happy to incite other people 
to have those thoughts. And insight is not even like insight is a is a proper word for that, but but there's also like uh, permission and almost blessing given uh, in a way that I don't really see a comparison to any other public figure that way. I mean, it's she's not pounding a Bible, she's not shouting, uh, she's given a giving a kind of spiritual permission, and that seems to me very chilling, uh, extremely effective. Yes, the the dehumanization of her enemies in combination with her rhetoric, you, you know, that's that's a bad equation. And she, she she maybe she can deny that she's talking about things in material terms and say she means it in some sort of quasi spiritual way, but it's in keeping with. A, you know, history. This isn't something that we haven't seen before. It's, it's precedent to something much worse when people find ways to forgive themselves for committing atrocities against those who may not be as human as them. Uh, it's it's pretty messed up, and the fact that people just nod along and bask in their essential oils and micro entrepreneurial uh, displays at their, their bougie barn, you know, it's, it, it is, it's, it's stomach turning in a lot of ways. Again, I just that, that luxury to have this view of the world with just crying wolf when anything comes along that, goes up against their worldview and then it's just it's sad and they're not all bad people and you you don't fall into the trap of demonizing them back that's not going to work but we still have to be aware of what these people are thinking about other people in their community that matters we we can't just be in denial of that Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for.